0: Later on I'll be putting some of my senses to the test to find out what my sensory fingerprint is when it comes to food. But first up, I'm off to the beach at Eastbourne in Wellington Harbour to meet the youngest campaign manager in this year's Bird of the Year competition.
1: Kia ora, I'm George, I'm 15 and I'm one of the banded of doctoral uh, monitors out here on Eastbourne Foreshore. I come out weekly and we just count how many pairs, how many individual birds and find nests as well so we can protect them.
0: So describe what we're looking at George what's the beach like here it's quite a wide beach with quite a well vegetated gravelly area at the back of it.
1: It is a wide beach so yeah we've got the beach out here we've got some driftwood right out on the end and the dotrals will usually use the furthest half closest to the sea and yeah as you say there's lots of vegetation out here including the native tarpita or caprosmas and other things as well.
0: Now we've got some stuff
1: in the car, you've
0: got a job to do, so what's that job?
1: Yeah, so we've got a trail camera to put out on the beach and that's to monitor how the nest goes and to get some footage of the nest and if it fails we'll get to find out exactly what's out here.
0: So you have some idea of where this nest is, so it's been reported to you. So shall we grab the gear and then you can tell me a bit more as we
1: walk out there. Sounds great.
0: Okay, so there's a nice wall to climb over some steps and I'm just I'm interested because there's a sign here on the wall that says Banded dotterel Nesting Area. Dotterels are nesting here between August and February, so it's early October so they've been going at it for a while.
1: They have, yeah, so they've been here since early August and they started breeding in September and they're still breeding out here now. And they will be yeah until February.
0: Okay, and then it's, so it says, please walk below the high tide mark to avoid disturbing nests and chicks and keep your dogs on a leash. So we don't have a dog?
1: No, absolutely, but, but it I've is seen important. i go past. Yes, <laughs> and they've been on the footpath, which is great to see, but it is important if you're out here to keep your dog on a lead, please. <laughs> okay, let's go. So we're looking for two upright sticks that have hopefully marked the nest from the people that found it.
0: Now, I'm sure we will have reason to say needle in a haystack more than once on this
1: Abs- little expedition. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Having a couple of centimetre long eggs on this uh, large beach will definitely be a needle in a haystack. So, we're just
0: scanning the area looking yeah. for sticks. Will the birds give themselves away?
1: Once we get close enough, yeah, so the, f- the birds that's on the nest will probably jump up, start peeping at us and get mad and run off and that usually gives them away pretty distinctly. So we'll look for that as we move out. We've found our first bird. It's a, a, a male banded dotral who's just foraging around looking for some insects.
0: So describe it to me.
1: So it's similar size to a blackbird and it's got two stunning bands across its chest including one really big chestnut and one slightly smaller black band and it's got a brown back to it and white underparts so its belly and chest are all white apart from the bands and it's just running around, bobbing up and down pecking at the ground to try and find some insects
0: So really what gives it away is the fact that it's moving, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, so it's Ooh, oh, just taken off. They're really good at camouflaging with that brown back. They blend right into the driftwood, so once they start moving, they're much more conspicuous than when they're hiding and sitting down in the, in the driftwood.
0: It's nice to see them out here because there's just houses on one side of us, like lots of houses, Eastbourne's quite the settlement, and then the, this bit of beach is really quite wild. I imagine it must get actually very wild out here in a big Wellington storm.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The spray comes up right across the beach in a big storm and lots of driftwood that's come up considerably past the high tide mark. Yes, it does make you wonder about the big storms. It does, absolutely. All right, shall we head out that way and see if we can spot any nests? Sure. Oh, I just heard a ping. Yeah, we can just hear it peeping from over there. Can't quite see it yet still blending in pretty well with its environment just spotted it coming towards us through the driftwood it was blending in very well in there and it looks like a female dotterel.
0: and what differentiates a female from a male?
1: yeah so it's got a much lighter chestnut band across its front and it's a yeah a little bit less bright and colourful than the male as well just running and making little peep noises as it goes. Now
0: I'm curious, you said they started breeding out here in August, but you, apart from this one nest that we haven't quite managed to find at the moment, what's happened to the other nests? Because had they started on nests?
1: Yeah, this is the fifth nest that we're trying to find now, but there were four others that unfortunately failed, and we're not quite sure exactly why yet, but all we know is some of the eggs got taken and some of them got left, and that could be from predation or... Yeah, we're still trying to work that out, and hopefully this camera will help with that. So
0: what would be predating them out here? Rats? Hedgehogs, maybe?
1: Uh, All of the above. So it could be rats, it could be hedgehogs, it could even be someone's cat that's just hopped the fence and come over from the houses.
0: So bandedotterals, they they breed all around the New Zealand coast?
1: So their population is declining. The estimates are between 20,000 and 50,000, but that is going down and they breed in some pockets around the coast and in primarily they breed in the braided rivers of the south island along with other birds like rybal and black fronted tern
0: now i have to say it's delightful because it's running closer and closer to us it's so yeah. a big circle around us and i
1: can just see the male behind the female running close to us he's doing a funny bobby thing
0: do you know what it means
1: It. I'm not exactly sure. It could mean a lot of different things. Sometimes what I've noticed is it might mean I've got something to hide and I've got something to protect. So I do wonder if maybe these are the birds that have a nest... We can hear them starting to get slightly more annoyed at us the closer we get. So maybe it is our birds.
0: So if there's a nest, what am I looking for?
1: So uh, not much. They nest in just a tiny little scrape in the sand and it looks like any other little uh, divot in the sand and the male makes it and he may have to make a few before the female decides that's the right one to lay an egg in or three eggs in this case. And they're just little bluey-grey eggs with dots on them. And they can be brown or black or slightly lighter dots, depending on the kind of bird. And there does seem to be some variation in egg colour as well.
0: My experience with birds like these on braided rivers down in the South Island is that the eggs always do a remarkably good job of looking just like a pebble.
1: Absolutely, (laughs) yes. It makes life so easy for people like us. (laughs)
0: because they're really just relying on camouflage, aren't they?
1: Exactly right. And that's one of the downfalls of our New Zealand birds. So they are used to aerial predators like falcons and harriers. They're not used to predators like stoats or hedgehogs or cats. And unfortunately, that's not good for them at all because they are the main predators out here, less so falcons and harriers.
0: So the finder of the nest is actually going to come and
1: (laughs) guide us to where
0: we're meant to be looking. We've had to
1: call and back up with this, I believe, is Joan who found the nest uh, a couple of days ago. So she's hopefully going to show us where to put the camera.
2: So you're one of the doctoral minders? I am, just a a real amateur. I just come along once a week. George does the main work, but I come along the foreshore with a friend and we're getting good at it. Finding nests, but so you found this one a couple of days ago? Yesterday. All right. So, if you got it? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I've got the bird Just the oh. birds just come off the nest there. So George has
0: suddenly seen it. We were very close to it before. Yeah. We were. <laughs> we, <laughs> we were, were embarrassingly right on top of it. close to but it you before. You see
2: how difficult it is to spot them. If you didn't see the bird get off the nest, you've really. So this it's got it. quite a
0: few bit, little bits of driftwood around yeah. it. Yeah. And some right. beautiful green speckled eggs. Yes. So yes. good spotting on your
2: part. Yes. <laughs> well, you have to wait for the birds to sit down. That's how you see them, you see. Once you see a bird sitting down, you know it's on a nest. So you always bring your binoculars out oh, when you're yeah, walking? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you have to get a bit of a distance to, so you don't spook it. So what interests you about the banded dotterel? Well, I've always been a bird spotter, so I'm just interested in birds generally. And these are such sweet little birds. They've got a special character. And well, now we've got flags on them.
0: We should perhaps explain to listeners we're not talking about the birds aren't running around carrying little flags. They're <laughs> waving for you. <laughs> These are little things that go on their legs, yes, aren't they? Yes, they
2: are. Right, the bird's getting angsty. I think there it is there. It's PCC. She's paired up with PCA as the male. This is a couple from last year who've paired up again this year. Oh, so they're like old friends. They're old friends. (laughs) Can you remember how well they did last year? Did they manage to get any chicks away? We had chicks last year, but we're still not sure that any fledged and left.
0: Must be nice having these little shorebirds nesting on your
2: beach. It's lovely. It's, um, yeah, it's very special. And it's amazing when you've been looking and you go along the foreshore, people will stop you and ask you, are there any new nests? Are there any chicks? You know, people are really quite interested (laughs) in them. But we don't know what's predating them this year, so this is... It won't be dogs, but they just disturb them. So are people around here trapping, trying to get rid of the predators? Oh, yes, there's traps all over here. And there was a stoat was found earlier in the year on the beach, so I mean that would be a key predator for the little bird.
1: The camera is set to motion detect, so as soon as the bird comes back on, it'll start recording and we'll film her sitting back down, and then when she stops moving, it'll stop recording. And if this nest does get predated, then it'll start filming as soon as a predator arrives. So we'll then be able to work out exactly what predator is out here and how best to combat it.
0: Oh, I can just see her scurrying back onto her nest.
1: Yes.
2: And she's
0: back.
1: Yep, back on the nest. Yes. Fantastic.
0: How long are they going to be incubating the eggs for?
1: Um, They'll be incubating, I think it's approximately 25 to 30 days they'll be incubating. And then they'll hatch their chicks. And um, then, yeah, their chicks are amazing. They're basically uh, little balls of fluff with legs. Oh, and cute. They are, yeah, very cute. <laughs> what colour? Uh, grey. So they're very different to their parents. And they've got a molt into their first adult plumage. And within a couple of hours, they're up and off the nest, running around feeding themselves and surviving by themselves, just hanging out with their parents until they're a little bit older. But they're off the nest so quickly.
0: You are so into dotterals that you are campaigning for them for Bird of the Year.
1: I am, absolutely, yeah. Banded a for Bird of the Year 2018.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, why should it be Bird of the Year?
1: They're as endangered as two species of kiwi, but yet they get hardly anywhere near the amount of conservation work or support that the kiwi do. And people know about the kiwi. The kiwi is our national bird, but people probably don't know about the banded dotterel. And they're so cute and they're so adorable that people really should deserve to know about them. And if they became bird of the year, then they would get such great publicity for that, there'd probably be more conservation work going into them, and they'd get a much bigger public profile, which would be so fantastic for the species and something they really desperately need.
0: Now I'm curious, they're little birds, but they actually head away in winter, don't they?
1: They do, yes. Yeah. So the birds from the South Island will migrate to Australia, to mostly the eastern coast, And some of the birds will also migrate up to the top of the North Island to places like Miranda Shorebird Centre, Kafia Harbour and places north of Auckland as well.
0: So where it's warmer.
1: Where it's warmer, exactly.
0: Sensible little birds.
1: Indeed they are. Very sensible.
0: But in the meantime they're the kind of bird that on lots of beaches around New Zealand you might get a chance to see them and hopefully they have a nearby community who, like you guys here, is keeping a, a careful eye out for them.
1: Absolutely, that's what I hope. Uh, the bandicoots really deserve that kind of protection and conservation work. So hopefully, there are lots of different community groups working on them. There aren't too many that are in the public eye that I know about, but there are lots of people dotted around the country that really care about the banded dotterels. So I think it's crucial that we increase that number because their population is declining really drastically, and it will be so sad to see them become another black robin that just get down to a handful of birds.
0: We have another dotterel species too, don't we?
1: We do. We've got two other dotterel species. We've got the black-fronted dotterel and the New Zealand dotterel.
0: And New Zealand dotterel, I think, is even rarer than the banded dotterel.
1: They are, yeah. So the New Zealand dotterel is much more endangered than the banded dotterel, or there are much less of them uh, around the country. But they do have quite a few people that are interested in them and doing some conservation work for them. So they're doing okay at the moment. Their population isn't in a great position, but they are doing okay around the country.
0: And what about black-fronted dottles?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's too much work going into them at the moment, but I think their population is pretty stable from what I've heard. And they are a pretty recent, in the scheme of things, arrival from Australia. so. They're oh, cl- so we
0: don't care about them. Yeah,
1: they're, they're, they're Aussies, yeah. Uh, they're a native species, whereas the banded Doctoral and the New Zealand Doctoral are endemic.
0: Found only here.
1: Exactly, yeah. They only breed in New Zealand.
0: Thanks, George. That's George Hobson, and he's a keen birder and conservationist from Wellington. He recently received an A.T. Edgar Jr. Award from Birds New Zealand for youth leadership. Voting for the 2018 Bird of the Year competition closes at 5 o'clock on Sunday the 14th of October. Head to birdoftheyear.org.nz to vote for the bird of your choice. George is obviously hoping you'll choose banded dotterel, while I'd love it if you voted hoiho or yellow-eyed penguin. Kei te mai koe ki tō tātou erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and thanks for your company on this edition of Our Changing World. Now we're going to explore the idea that eating is about much more than just hunger. Mae Peng is at the University of Otago. She studies human senses and how these influence our eating behaviour. Our senses are intimately connected with our brain and may think some of us may be more likely to overeat because we get so much pleasure from it. We eat because we really like food. But for others, food might just be a necessary fuel. She has a Marsden grant to look at the idea that why we eat, and especially why we overeat, might be due to unique sensory fingerprints. I'm off to the Food Sciences Department to join May and PhD student Rachel Genius to find out more and to give my taste buds a bit of a workout.
3: We think everyone has this unique sensory world, which we do, because we have different sensitivities with our vision, our taste, and our smell. So that's present to us a very unique sensory world. But how does this different sensory world drive our behavior? But I'm particularly interested in eating behavior. So, what makes us eat? What we eat, and how much we eat? Yeah.
0: So what are the senses that are involved in eating?
3: Actually, all five senses that we have, yeah. So imagine that we have a dish in front of us and we enjoy the appearance and uh, when we put the food in our mouth, we enjoy the flavour which comes from smell and taste. And sometimes we even hear the crunching sound and texture, of course. So all five senses are involved in eating. And I think that's, that's one of our hypotheses is people have this relativity across those senses. So some people might be more visual dominant and some people might be more smell dominant. So that could be one of the reasons that we eat so differently.
4: Also, there is an interaction between your senses. So as May said, you can have like um, a main sense that is really developed, but also you have this interaction between your olfaction, your tasting, and um, your touch senses. And so, yeah, all of that can interact, and so you can perceive something really easily, for example. But it's not because of only one sense, but yeah, because of the combination of all of that. What we try
3: to do is to link in sensory perception to the reward system, because we believe food, particularly in t- today's food environment, food has become really palatable and really accessible. So lots of people they are more susceptible to this changes in the food world. So lots of people, you see them uh, snack a lot or they eat a lot during main meals, um, but uh, opposed to them, uh, some people, they don't snack that much. One way to think is to do with self-control or um, something like that, but another possibility is the sensory differences, and maybe they influence our reward to food very differently. Some people may hold a great reward value of food, but some people may not.
0: So I might really enjoy food just for the pleasure of eating it, as opposed to you, and you just might go, I eat when I'm hungry.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we say there's two types of eating. One type of eating is eating for homeostasis, um, so kind of eating for survival, um, but the other type of eating is eating for pleasure. What we hypothesize here is um, we believe people. More similar in terms of eating for survival, but the differences in our eating exist in eating for pleasure, what we call hedonic eating. How are you going about testing this? What are you doing? Yeah, so as you can imagine, we our testing is a huge testing setup because we are interested in human senses. We're interested in the cognitive factors involved in eating, and we're also interested in the neurological basis of those differences. So what are we are trying to set up is to test this whole process. So start with um, the sensory sensitivities to profile a person's sensitivity of different senses. And um, so once we get a good understanding of that person's sensory sensitivities, we move on to cognitive responses, and we're actually setting up using neuroimaging tools to look at how food would hit the different spot for different people. And then we translate this research into behavioural research as well. So we put actual food there and look at people's choices, and then we can relate to those choices back to the data that we had, like the sensory data and neuroimaging data that we had before.
0: Rachel and May have agreed to run me through some of the experiments. Ooh, um... The idea is to tease out how important each sense is. First up, smell.
3: What we have here is a uh, standard smell tester called a sniffing sticks. How we do the tester is present this stick to the participants. So I'm going to smell it? Yes, please. Yep. Yep.
0: So can I actually smell anything? The trick
3: is there might not even
0: be a smell.
3: Which one has a smell? Which one has a smell to you?
0: Well, I didn't get any smell from the first one. (laughs) So what's the threshold at which I can smell something? Next, can I identify the scent?
3: How would you describe that smell?
0: Um, I would have described that as slightly floral.
3: Floral. that's a very good description and...
0: Ooh, um, And as the smell gets stronger, does it change? It's but, M- more of a sharper floral?
3: Yeah, it's, they are actually the same compound. It's just a, a more concentrated. It might have changed the smell quality to some people. So mm. some people may describe this as fishy. I smell fishy in this one. <laughs> oh, okay. no, ha. Yeah. No,
0: so my rose no is uh. someone else's fish. Curious.
3: Now, I'm just
0: interested, because I actually don't think I've got a great sense of smell. What about you?
3: Um, I believe I have a good sense of smell, but I'm having a cold in this two days. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, so... Colds um, definitely get in the way, don't they? Definitely. So some people they would say they lose appetite when they have a cold. It's because of simply because of block the nose. Because Mm -hmm. if you can't smell, there's no flavor in food. So all the flavor in food actually comes from sense of smell. So a word without smell would be a little bit boring, yeah.
0: I think it's something that older people complain about because they lose their sense of smell and they say, "Oh, food just doesn't taste good anymore."
3: That's that's correct. So, some emerging research suggests that smell is actually a very fascinating sense because um, it actually has a close relevance to lots of neurological diseases as well. A decline in smell could be uh, related to early uh, symptoms of. Parkinson's and um, Alzheimer's.
4: Yeah, because if you have a degeneration in your nervous system, so the connection between your olfactory receptor, for example, or your test receptor... And uh the brain. So this the connection is the nerves and see if your nerves are damaged or yeah, if you have this degeneration of that during the time, it can block the connection between your receptors and, and the brain and so you don't have the perception of it. Is there a genetic component
0: to smell as well if my Mother has a poor sense of smell. Does that increase the chances that I'll have a poor
3: sense of smell? It's a very interesting question. We don't know so much to answer your question yet, but there's definitely studies suggesting genetic basis for smelling some compounds. A typical example would be coriander. So some people really don't like the... Taste, or that we call taste, which is a flavour of a coriander. So some people love coriander and describe it as, a, as a fresh. The smell is a fresh. is is citrusy. But like people like me find a coriander has a very uh, strong and unpleasant flavour or smell. That sometimes has been described as soapy, as a stink box, as mould, uh, all sorts of things. So that has a genetic. Um, basis for that. Since you bring up genetics, we do have a taster compound for you to try to see if you are a genetically determining the prop taster or not. This compound is called prop. If you are super taster, you will find it very bitter.
0: No, I find it completely neutral.
3: Yeah. So that tastes like water to me, but some people would find that really bitter. Myself, yeah. Oh. I just before you came, I tried a little bit. Yeah. Rachel made me try a little bit. This <laughs> is super bitter for me. What does it taste like to you?
4: I would say that I'm in between, so I can taste that it's bitter, but it's not super bitter for me, so that's okay. I can drink it. But for example, May she cannot keep it in her mouth because it's too strong. And for you, it doesn't taste like anything.
0: Now I've heard of super tasters, and they are super sensitive.
3: Uh, yes, that's, that's a concept that we held for a long time, that we believe that there are supertasters, tasters and non-tasters. Um, and it's really interestingly, we define those categories of tasters based on prop for a long time. But um, I think some recent research has suggested it's not necessarily true. So some people like me, I find this compound super bitter, but it doesn't mean that I have a super sense for other compounds What we prepare here is a sweetness threshold test. So to find out the people's sensitivity to sweetness, which varies a lot. Um, And in a way, it's a simple test, but it's very interesting to us because... People vary so much in terms of like, intake or preference for sweetness. So some people have this sweet tooth, but some people don't. We, we, like, we would think we have understood a lot about this, but in reality it's not. Um, we're still looking for the reason for it. So what we have here is three different concentrations and what we use to identify the person is a super-sensitive person or not.
0: This is like a wine tasting but with sugar water instead. I take a sip from each of two glasses and have to say which one is sweeter. I'd say that one.
4: Yeah, that was that one. This concentration is usually the main threshold for people to detect the sweetness in in a beverage. So, yeah. Excellent. I'm average for that test. But for the next one, my true colours
0: start to show. Are you also going to ask people about what what motivates them to eat? Why they eat? You know, are, that thing of are they eating for pleasure, for hedonism, or are they yes. motivated by something else?
3: Yes. Start finding out people's individual differences in food choice. So what makes them to choose certain things or amount of certain food? Yeah. Yes. It is a kind of a computer game we call it. Twitter is. It's called the implicit association test. What it does is to ask people respond to high-fat or high-sugar food, and at the same time respond in positive versus negative words. So the words
0: I associate with pictures of high or low-sugar food and how quickly I choose those words, these give an insight into what I really like.
3: So it says my
0: score is 0.7, which suggests a strong automatic preference for
3: high-sugar food compared to low-sugar food. Yep,
0: I've got a sweet tooth. But not everyone does.
3: You would be surprised to see some people would get a minus 0.7. Yeah, and they're suggesting they really interested in low-sugar food. And one other uh, behavioural task that we do is using eye tracker.
0: So I've got the
3: special tracker glasses
0: on, mm. so they're going to be able to... Follow where my pupils go. Is that what they're going to do? Yeah,
3: and what's even more interesting thing is we can see the pupil dilation. So when people like a particular kind of food, um, their pupil really dilate and you could see the excitement just through measuring the distance,
4: yeah. It's um. a kind of subconscious reaction of your body that you couldn't even say in a questionnaire. For example, you couldn't say, oh yeah, usually when I see chips, my pupil are really delighted, so with this kind of device we can measure that and so that's interesting to see the body reaction.
0: Oh, so this time there's potato chips and popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) This time, folks, there is real food. (laughs) And since you've offered them to me, I might have one. (laughs) Mm. Deliciously salty.
3: (laughs) Mm. I think you're not alone. I think (laughs) chips are always the popular food. (laughs)
0: Thanks, May. A big thanks to May Peng from the Food Sciences Department at the University of Otago and to PhD student Rachel Genius. And the tests I tried are just part of a much larger study. It includes neuroimaging participants to see what's going on in their brain when they see food like cakes and potato crisps. Many thanks for listening. If you want to hear more or see some photos of George's banded dotterals, check out our web page, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Why not sign up for our weekly email newsletter while you're there? On Twitter and Facebook, we are RNZ Science. From me, Alison Balance, bye for now, māte